about one by Andy Warhol. He said, They always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. And what's standing in the way of you doing that thing anyway? That big thing that you really want to do? What is actually standing in the way? This is the podcast Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's about motivation, inspiration, and making positive changes in your life. You can find us at philweston.blog. So whether you want to change your job or your lifestyle, then learn from others and see what they've done. Then go and make the change yourself. Today I'll be speaking to Alex Linley, a therapist from the Manchester area. Uh, so, hey, Alex, how are you feeling today? Uh, yeah, good, thanks. Um, I know you've been, uh, yeah. I know you've been dog training and uh, creating a garden of your own recently. So, how's that been going for you? Um, yeah, the dog training um, is coming on okay. It's actually a new approach that we've adopted, which is positive dog training. Um, which means only paying attention to the things that you want to encourage and ignoring the things that you want to discourage. But when your dog attacks another dog, it doesn't really work because you can't ignore that. That is quite difficult to ignore, yeah. So has there been a lot of ignoring <laughs> bad behaviours? Uh, yeah, ignoring... No, it's not bad behaviour. It's uh, undesirable or unwanted behaviour. Yeah, you want to... You've got to think <laughs> if you're designing a dog in your own image. Sure. Yeah, you don't want to offend them either. Um, you don't want to offend them. You don't want to get caught up in um, some kind of, you know, lexical battle. Exactly. It's just semantic at the end of the day, isn't it? Exactly. In fact, he's just walked into the room now, even though I told him explicitly to stay out. Um, ignore him. And Well, yeah, and... The more he barks, the more you have to ignore him. Ignore him as hard as you can. <laughs> All right, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, I've sent mine out yeah. for the for the time being, so yeah, should be all right. And uh, your website's called uh, "It's Okay to Do Therapy." Uh, do most people think it's not? Um, I think that's something that's changing, um, but I would still say that. For a lot of people, um, especially men and especially young men, which is a demographic I was hoping to appeal to, um, being a fairly young man myself, um, that it's something that unfortunately isn't okay. Um, I mean, it's not unheard of as it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago or more, but it's certainly not the norm. Do uh, men of a certain generation just not get therapy? Um, I don't know if it's a, a generational thing or if it's um, to do with upbringing as well. Um, you know, I personally grew up in a household where communication wasn't really paramount. And so therapy is something that I kind of got into relatively late in life. I was 30 years old before I... Uh, saw my first therapist and it was always something that I didn't necessarily write off I just always thought of it as being for other people sure yeah I, I think a lot of people think about it like that don't they um, um 
yeah, yeah. but you know, just in terms of whether it's a generational thing, you know, in my own experience, my my first ever client was a gentleman who was um, in his early nineties, um, as were most of my. Uh, the the first bunch of clients that I had because I was um, doing it in a a hospice setting, and it's certainly a different level of comfort that seems to differentiate the generations. Um, what do you people mean are much that? more comfortable now. Well, I think people are much more comfortable now in sharing aspects of themselves that they may not have done, you know, thirty forty years ago. Um, People live in the open now, you know, with the advent of social media and, um, you know, the kind of self-publishing that goes on at the moment. It's not so much the norm to play your cards to your chest. And I don't think that's a gender thing. Um, I think that is um, a sociological thing. Are we are we oversharing now, do you reckon? Um. It's it's difficult to it's difficult to say in a a kind of general way. It all has to come down to personal choice, and I think that if you're doing things within the boundaries of where you feel safe, then that's absolutely fine. But I think um, sharing now is so easy and so readily available and so accessible that I think it's often the case that it's only after you've shared that um, people realise that they've gone outside of their comfort zone. So it's only after this photo or this video or this comment has been put online that you realise maybe it wasn't in your best interests and, you know, it's too late by then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I recognise it's very different between generations. I would have thought you mentioned you were in a hospice setting, though. Uh, that that might cut through a lot of people's um, blocks. I would have thought about about opening up. Is that not the case? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, grief. It's um, it's the great bringer together. You know, it's the one thing that everybody has in common. Um, we're all going to experience it at some point in our lives, and certainly for a lot of the people I worked with at the hospice, whether whether I worked with them because they themselves were terminally ill or because they were recently bereaved, it was um, a service offered by the hospice to both residents and families of the residents. Um, and for most of them, this was their first contact with therapy. And obviously in each case it was this coming face-to-face -face with death that had brought them there, whether it was their own mortality or somebody close. Um, and in many cases, it was actually um, death of a spouse, yeah. which a lot of the literature suggests is um, one of the most debilitating things to go through. Yeah, I suppose it's, um, from your point of view, it's uh, somewhat academic, is it? Is, uh, you, uh, you see other people going through it, but it's, um, you know, I suppose you can only imagine what it would be like yourself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the, a big part of therapy or a big part of person-centered therapy is empathy. And it's something that a lot of trainees and, you know, practicing therapists, myself included, often struggle with. And you, you think about some of 
you know, the clients that you have and the presenting issues that they come with. And it can be overwhelming sometimes and it's easy to think, well, how can I possibly be expected to empathise when their experience is, um, you know, so vastly different to mine. And I think what helps me is kind of um, trying to look at it in that it's not the essential specifics of the experience that have to be the same it's the kind of emotional response and the feelings at the root of these experiences which allow us to empathize yeah so you know for example just because we may have something common with a person it doesn't guarantee um, a shared experience just like if we have nothing in common it doesn't guarantee that we have no shared experiences just to give an example you know if I was seeing a client whose mother had just died and I'd lost my mother you know it would be kind of um, presumptuous for me to think that our experiences had been the same yeah just because the kind of the, the facts of the story were the same yeah it's more there's more shades of gray in uh, in reality isn't there well, yeah, absolutely, and you know one of the uh, one of the biggest hurdles and one of the biggest kind of pitfalls of, I think, especially newly um, practicing therapists, is this idea that um, a shared experience equals um, a complete understanding of what the person is going through. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Um... We perhaps jumped the gun a bit there. Uh, so starting uh, back at the beginning again. Um, so you, mm -hmm. you told me uh, before the uh, interview that your current trajectory started in uh, Bangkok. Uh, I don't know if you were taking a mic. Is that one true? <laughs> no, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, lots of things that happen in Bangkok stay in Bangkok, but uh, luckily the therapy wasn't one of them. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I mean, this me was in, yeah, yeah, this was in um, 2013 and I was uh, living in Bangkok. I was teaching there and this was, um, this was after having left the UK in 2009. So I'd been um, teaching around Southeast Asia and um, in Spain for four years by this point. And then I found myself in Bangkok and then following um the breakup of a relationship i found myself addressing not only the circumstances of the breakup but the myriad things that had happened in the you know 15 20 years before that had ultimately led to it and what i started to do was notice patterns in behavior and um patterns in life I guess you could call it essentially you know if relationships kept going down a certain path and if there were markers and if there were things to recognize then surely there should be a way to stop that or um, just I guess the feeling that I'm not necessarily predisposed to have this kind of relationship if you see what I mean. So was it that breakup that you would say sort of um kicked you into action really sort of made, sent you on a on a trajectory well yeah I mean I'd experienced breakups in the past and um, my attitude in the past had always been that the breakup happened because the relationship 
was always headed that way that it was never meant to be you know if it had then we'd still be together kind of thing and um accepting it in that way but in this particular instance you know the breakup hit me quite hard and I started to look back at um my role within the relationship and realizing that it was completely avoidable and there were you know things that I had done and not done which ultimately led to it and that it wasn't so much kind of it was always going to be this way Um, it could have gone a million different ways and so I started to really question this kind of way of looking at my life that I'd had, which was quite black and white. Okay. Yeah. And you just sort of, um, you reevaluated really started questioning the, the fundamentals. Well, well, yeah, exactly. Questioning the fundamentals and questioning these things about myself that I'd always taken for granted. Um, you know, there were a lot of labels that I had attached to myself Um there were ways of coping with things that I'd always just taken for granted as being my ways of coping. So I wasn't a big communicator. I was very introverted. Um, I wouldn't speak about my feelings and I I would see that as a strength and I'd brood um, and kind of reflecting on this and the part that played in the breakdown of this particular relationship I started to question, first of all, where I'd kind of got this image of myself from um, and also kind of whether or not it was actually doing me any favours, whether it was something that I wanted to continue with or if it was something I wanted to challenge and potentially adapt. Sure. And then after this sort of awakening or this moment, you uh, you carried on travelling and teaching for quite a while. Um, did that, did, you know, your subsequent experiences also uh, affect your your kind of route or your journey in this um, kind of becoming a therapist? Um, well, following that, I actually started uh, my first therapy sessions in Bangkok. I went to, um, I found uh, a few different therapists in the city and I had a few consultations before I decided on one um, therapist. His name was uh, Jean-Francois, he was from Belgium. And... I had, I think, I think I saw him for three months, and then towards the end of our time together, I started thinking about the work that we'd done, and you know the changes that had happened in my life, in my way of thinking, in my way of viewing myself, and I just couldn't get away from this feeling that he was doing something really, really worthwhile, and that I'd just done something really, really worthwhile. And this kind of coincided with me becoming quite fatigued with the um, English teaching industry. What would have fatigued uh, you with it? Um, I just... The thing with teaching English is the only way to become more successful is to work for bigger and more successful schools, and that inevitably leads to entering more of a, a corporate atmosphere when you're talking about you know customers instead of students and this was something that I'd been getting increasingly unhappy with and so it you know it may have been that I was just somewhere in the back of my mind looking for a new direction to take and latched onto this but I I don't know I just all the things that I felt were lacking in my teaching work, um, a lot of the integrity and a lot of the 
feeling of doing something worthwhile for, I guess, people in dire need um, seemed something that I could um, get from offering therapy. <clears throat> I suppose there's a sort of overlap so the, there because um, so teaching and therapy are both professions where you might see the like a vocation or you might see it as kind of transcending the the paycheck really um but therapy perhaps more so um and then i suppose there's an awkwardness is there when when you've had a real connection with someone you know perhaps in a in a hospice situation and but there is a, an economic reality underlying the work at the same time so how how do you kind of resolve that um how do you mean i mean does it does it ever feel weird or you know because i suppose you have to promote yourself you, you are you're a business at the same time as a well as a therapist is it do you ever confront that economic reality within therapy like you did in teaching you mean the fact that i have to get paid for the work basically yeah i mean yeah it's awkward and you know the um the word prostitute sometimes pops into your head <laughs> and because essentially it, all you're selling is yourself you are the product yeah, and even though that's essentially the same with teaching, you have your whiteboard and your books and your podium and your TVs and your stereos and stuff and your, you know, computer labs and libraries. So there's a whole other bunch of things being sold along with you, and it is a very very strange thing to have somebody you know inquire about the service and to send them an invoice and for them to pay you and then they show up and all they get is you essentially and a space yeah it's bare bones and um, it, it really really is and it might sound i don't know if it sounds arrogant but i never felt more than a slight discomfort at that and i think that's because i had heard and i guess experienced um sufficiently that I was worth what they were paying. And I think more importantly, that I'd been in the position and, you know, I'd been the client, I'd paid for a service. Yeah. And at no point had I thought, well, that was a waste of, you know, however much it is. Perhaps the and, the economic aspect of it adds a necessary distance in it, in that if you're talking to a relative or something, they're always going to have a vested interest in in saying one thing or another or helping you or whatever, and you have that professional dispassionate relationship, which which is necessary. I've heard in uh, in therapeutic sort of interventions. Well, I mean, more than necessary, I'd say it's the only thing separating it from having a chat with you know a friend or a colleague or a family member. I mean, one thing that ther therapy frees you from, as well as you know. It's often heralded as a judgment-free space, which is obviously the foundation of it. But it's also a space free from um, being placated or being booked up um, or being reassured um, or and, and advice as well. I mean, that's not to say that some, you know, people seeking therapy don't want or claim to want all the things i just named but essentially that's what differentiates this relationship from any other relationship that we've had i mean it's it's 
it's a very, very one-sided relationship. It's a relationship in which the focus is all on one person. And that's understood from the beginning. And that's agreed upon from the beginning. You know, one thing that I tell any um, prospective client in an assessment is that the onus, the responsibility is on them to bring the content to the session. Sure. And, and, I, and I will follow their... Yeah, and I will follow their lead, and nor am I going to sit them down and ask them a set of pre-prepared questions in order to fill the time. Sure. Because there's, you know, the first few sessions, I don't know this person from Adam, and there's no guarantee that the questions I'm asking are, you know, any relevance to this person whatsoever. I could sit them down and say, okay, tell me about your relationship with your father, and this might have nothing to do with where the person's coming from or what's going on for them at the moment. Yeah. And and so, you know, this kind of, um, this idea of, you know, the kind of Freudian expert analysing the patient and, you know, the word itself, analyse, the analyst, is in a lot of circles quite an old-fashioned one now because, you know, to analyse something, it's looking at an inanimate object and drawing conclusions from it yeah whereas the way many people work now and have done you know for the last 50 years or so um since carl rogers and the like it's um it's a collaboration and the only expert in the room is the client oh, yeah that's interesting yeah um let me where are we going now just one second um, so yeah, right. you, having uh, travelled so extensively, uh, you've sort of been around the world and come back. Really, uh, was that all necessary to, um, in order to kind of give you the skills that you, you currently have to, in order to help people? Um, no, I don't think so. I think um, I mean it certainly helped, and it certainly helped me to hone my, um, I guess, style of therapy because. You know, training to become a therapist is like training to become so many other things. You know, you, you finish your training and then you start working, and that's essentially when you start becoming the therapist that you're going to be. Um, and a lot of approaches to therapy are very, very dogmatic, and it's really easy to kind of get sucked in in the early days and come out of your training quite blinkered that the way I've been taught is the only way to work. And so, obviously, you know, my experience traveling and living abroad has fed my approach, my style of therapy and the things that I feel, the ways in which I feel comfortable working. Um, I mean, I couldn't say specifically how. I mean, I probably could if we had a few days. But I think the only things that are absolutely essential for anybody doing the job that I do is um, an acceptance of your own flaws and your own needs and whatever's going on for you. Um, certainly, first-hand experience of being a client as well is so important. I mean, unless you've made the journey, unless you've taken that really difficult decision and then you've gone through the you know the internet or the phone book or whatever and found a therapist and you've gone to that first consultation or that first session you know that feeling of sitting in the waiting room or going into the office for the first time or 
any of that, which is so strange and outside of most experiences we've had. And I think unless you've been through that, then if you haven't been the client, I don't think you have any business being the therapist. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. Um, and so you're um, to, uh, to sort of come back to your your journey on the, on the path to becoming a ther- therapist. Um, so uh, it, we're quite, we're kind of framing this around the hero's journey. So starting off with the trials and tribulations stage, and then moving on to mm. the kind of the highs. Of course, it's not that simplistic. But can you could you tell us about some of the uh, of the lows, maybe, or the, of the difficulties that you had um, when you first started out? Started out with the training, yeah, with the therapy in general. I mean, um, yeah, exactly. Yes, with it, with the career, I suppose. Um, well, it was when I first decided that I was going to do it. That was um, a really, really great time because it was it was liberating just to know that um, I had a plan, and it was a it was a five year plan. Um. And I spent a couple more years teaching, so this would have been around 2014 to 2016, at which point I'd moved to Madrid um, with a view to saving up enough money to come back to the UK and do a master's. Um, And, you know, it might sound really obvious, but one of the greatest hardships was the financial one because it's not a route for which there's... Um, much funding or you know I found any funding and it's um, uh, quite an expensive route as well especially if you decide to do it to master's level you got three years of studying part-time as well as paying all your fees and everything else but something I don't know if it's unique about this course but it's certainly particular about it is you're studying part-time, which means doing one full day a week in university. You're also doing, for me, at least two placements as well, which was two days a week um, giving therapy voluntarily. Um, and then you've also got about five or six hours each week of writing up client notes. So call that another half day. And in between that, Again, if you're doing it the way I did, you're also trying to make rent and, you know, live. Um, and it's it's not a course that you can just go home from. You know, the day in university is can be very, very intensive. You finish each day with um, what's essentially an hour and a half of group therapy. You finish at half past eight. You get home for, you know, nine o'clock or whatever. You do your journaling. And then you're seeing clients in between that. And, you know, personally for me, I was seeing clients who were in the final stages of various cancers. And then I was writing up notes on this and I was listening to um, recordings of these sessions and transcribing them and analysing them. So it's in no way the kind of studying that you finish your day at uni or your day at placement and you switch off from it. It's... it. Um, inhabits kind of a lot of your time and even when you're not doing it you're thinking about it is it possible to switch off from it um i mean i I suppose it must be otherwise it would be undoable you know um i mean you know while all this is going on you've also got to 
be in your own weekly therapy and your own monthly supervision as well. Hmm. Um, Are you dwelling all the time what... on the on the sadness, or is there room for kind of joy within that? Um, I wouldn't call it dwelling. I mean, one thing that become a therapist has made me really particular about is words and I would say reflecting rather than dwelling sure because you're just privy to so many aspects of the human experience every single week um and in ways that the week previous you may never have thought and it 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 might sound a bit callous to say but there were some days um leaving the hospice I was working when I just felt so happy to be alive and to put it quite bluntly just so happy not to be dying because it's seeing somebody on the threshold of their own death in such a personal way it first of all really brings it home to you that this is something that's on the cards for everybody um, but also that this isn't something that's on the cards for me right now. And, you know, like I said, it might sound a bit cold to say, but sometimes walking out of that hospice, um, you know, it'd be a sunny day walking through the park. It really helps you appreciate that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I'd imagine. Uh, well, I could only imagine. Um, and so, so speaking of suffering, um, is it mm-hmm. is it necessary to have suffered to, to significantly maybe to to be a good therapist to to really have that uh, ability to emote um well there's a there's a i think the term is wounded healer and you know i can't think of anybody i know personally who doesn't fit that mold in some way or another i mean we've all lived through our own version of a tragedy i should imagine we've all felt you know, law, does it have to be catastrophic? You know, does it have to be dramatic? I couldn't really say. Um, As I was saying before, you know, you don't need to have experienced the same thing that your clients have. All you need to be is open. And so I wouldn't suggest that somebody who's had a quote-unquote, you know, soft life would be unsuited to the profession, just as somebody who has lived through tragedy after tragedy would make the perfect therapist. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, there's, um, there's no guarantees that this kind of experience will equal this kind of person. Um, I mean... <laughs> And there's a lot of grading that goes on as well. Um, As in, uh, you know, the worst things you can think of, you know, this person's lived through this, well, this person's lived through this, well, this is much worse. And this is something that I kind of struggled with during the training, that there should be some things that are more difficult than others, Um, that there are some things that are kind of more tragic than others. Um, and so I think whether applied to the client or the therapist, it's, you know, irrelevant. And I think if you have had tragedies in your own life, it would matter more, not that you've had them, but how you've coped with them. I mean, for me personally, you know, kind of, um, 
I wouldn't say tragedies, but difficulties I've had in the past when I was much, much younger, like a, you know, teenager, university age, I dealt with by kind of distancing myself from my problems. I had problems at home with my family and I distanced myself from them. I kind of brought off that side of my life. Um, and when it did come up, I'd keep it down with, you know, a drink and various things like this. And obviously that was something that suited me at the time. It was something that worked at the time. Now, I'm not saying that this is a long-term solution, but I think the ability to reflect on methods that you've had of coping with things and be able to say that was suitable for that person, age 18, age whatever. I'm not that person now, so I need to think about whether I want to adapt these coping mechanisms. Now, it's something that I'm asked frequently by new clients in consultations. You know, I always ask them if they've got any tangible kind of measurable goals that they'd like to get from the therapy. What I hear a lot of is, um, you know, they want to learn coping mechanisms, which, you know, first of all, if I had a list of ways to cope with life, you know, that would be a kind of sacred text. But also what a lot of people don't realise is, you know, they have coping mechanisms. You know, they are still able, for the most part, to get up and go to work and live a life and keep on top of these things. And I think the question is not, do you have any coping mechanisms, but do I need to think about and potentially update the ones that I already have? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh, and that's a quite a struggle, isn't it, really? Because that's, that's what identity crisis and things comes into that, doesn't it? Because... Often we live in previous versions of ourselves, struggling to update, like uh, uh, without quite managing it, don't we? And um, trying old solutions to to new problems and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of what we do is based upon things we've done in the past, and it's almost like using your your life as a reference guide. So, you know, what would Alex do in this situation? Well, let's see what he did in a similar situation. Okay, he'll do that again. And, you know, sometimes a therapist and the role of therapy can be something so simple as to just question that, something that seems, you know, second nature, you know, just to be able to take you back and say, okay, this is something we take for granted. Like, let's question it. And questioning some of these fundamentals that we believe about ourselves can be really, really powerful and, um, you know, can bring about really positive change. And personally speaking, uh, like, how do you feel now? Um, so, if, I suppose having come around to the other side of of the journey, and you are it now. I mean, you're, I'm sure it's still an ongoing process, but how does it feel to be it? Um, that's mm, good question. I don't think. I guess. You know, first of all, it feels fantastic. It's speaking personally, it's something that I set out to do and it's something that I did. And it's the first time in my life that I have set out and achieved something that I can see some real longevity in. Um, now, also with that, there's, uh, you know, the fair amount of imposter syndrome, especially at the beginning. Like I said, you find yourself sitting in that chair and 
an aspect of it is the money. You've got to say to yourself, okay, I've got to sit here and be worth X amount an hour. But you've also got to be worth this person's faith in you as well. Now, a therapist isn't there to solve problems or to heal. A therapist, one of my first tutors told me that a therapist on the bottom line is there to be a vessel and to do no harm. And being worthy of that is humbling, but it's also really, really enriching. And, you know, as long as my journey's been, I can still look at myself and think, wow, that was, you know, that was a really old version of me handling that situation. You know, that was the unpolished version of me expressing this a point or this opinion. And I think just keeping yourself in check, and I think one of the worst things anybody could do is sit there and think, well, I'm the finished product. Like, you know, take me out, I'm done, there's nowhere left to go. So where is left to go? And it's, um, I don't like to think of there being an end point because, because it's the end. Um. I think I'd like to be a lot more accepting of myself and my own flaws. Um, I'd like to be much, much better at um, expressing myself to the people I care about. Now, this is something that I and probably a million other clients of therapy have found in the past that you know, within half an hour I was able to express myself better to a stranger than I was to my siblings my parents my wife my best friends and that's something that I've been working on I you know personally have a big problem with being vulnerable amongst um, the people close to me and that for me is something I'll be working on I think for a long long time they did a, an experiment once uh, in relation to addiction that just sort of sprung to mind. I know we're not talking about addiction per se, but I think it's, uh, it's possible to generalize. And it was with um, like hamsters or something, or gerbils or something, uh, test animals. And um, they were given uh, water uh, laced with cocaine or normal water, and it was an option. And uh, those that were kept in captivity in, in like kind of horrible circumstances were were more apt or more sort of willing to, to take the cocaine-laced water, whereas those that were having had a kind of uh, hamster kind of wonder world where they could sort of run through tubes and meet their mates and, uh, and uh, generally have a laugh, uh, weren't. And they were more disposed towards the water and a less, I guess, a less self-destructive behavior. So um, I guess my, my sort of final question is, uh, is it crises of connection that cause our problems? Is it is that the underlying cause of all our problems, or is it is that overly simplistic? By crises of connections, you mean the kind of the lack of communication, the lack of the reaching out, La- lack of or broken connections, or that is not doing it for you, you know, or, or whatever it may be, just some issue with connection with others, being the sort of social animals we are. Um, I don't know if anyone's um, built to be solitary, and I don't know. Well, no, I mean, I certainly tried to be solitary for a long time and um, I found that that was actually part of the way that I liked to view myself rather than being something that I think I genuinely benefited from. 
I mean, I'm still somebody who enjoys being alone a lot, but not as much as maybe I convinced myself that I did. In terms of our connections, the root of all our problems, no, I would think I would say that our problems are the root of all our problems, and the lack of connection is just a way to exacerbate them, to make sure that they're problems that go um, unnoticed or unspoken and unsolved, which doesn't have to be the case. Hmm. Um, That's a good answer. It's... Okay, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I would, you know, when you said that, it made me, it made me think of um, so many people for whom these escapes. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's like the chicken and the egg. Maybe the escape comes from the lack of communication, and the lack of communication just compounds the need to escape. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we'll leave it there. Um, so just to reiterate, I suppose, it's um, your website is itsokaytodotherapy.com. And uh, what will people find yeah. uh, there? Um, people find um, a little bio of me and some contact details and some testimonials. Um, at the moment, obviously, I'm offering um, a telephone or um, video-based service. Um people more than welcome to get in touch via text or email or to give me a phone call and I offer a free half an hour consultation after which um, people can decide whether or not they'd like to continue. All right. Well, thanks very much, Alex. Well, thank you very much too. It was uh, very, very nice. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed the show, sign up to get updated whenever a new one comes out. Go to philweston.blog to find out more and uh, please leave comments because feedback keeps things interactive and we love to hear what you've got to say. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.